0: Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing.
1: Morning, Dr. Marvin Trotter. Good morning, Cobb. Is that all there
2: is? (laughs) Is I wonder sometimes. No, we have a great
1: show today. That's not all there is. All right, we got enthusiasm around here folks. We're, we're all in this together. We have an excellent guest for you today. Dr. Kara Eberhardt. Are you with us, Kara?
3: Yes, hi.
1: Welcome to KZYX. Thanks for
3: Thank being you here.
4: I'm a big fan.
2: <laughs> Great, and she's only been here a few months. So, Dr. Eberhardt, Medically Assisted Treatment Programs, Substance abuse. Tell us how you got to Mendocino County. What are you doing here?
4: Yeah, well, I'm here doing my family medicine residency. Um, I, Before coming here, I was at UCSF for medical school. Um, I went to UC Berkeley for my undergrad, and then I worked in the Bay Area for about six years in between undergrad and medical school, working mostly in kind of in and around addiction treatment. And then I was getting kind of interested in rural health at the end of my time in medical school, and I was looking for a rural residency. And I had spent some time up in Mendocino County. I had a friend who was working at the Anderson Valley Health Center.
2: Oh, really? And
4: I, Yeah, yeah. And so I just, I really love the area, and I wanted to come up here and work, and then I want to stay here after I'm done.
2: That's fabulous. Um, I've worked at the Anderson Valley Health Clinic. It's a great place.
4: Yeah, yeah. My friend's a nurse practitioner there.
2: Oh, my daughter sees her. She likes her very much.
4: (laughs) I'll let her know. Hopefully she's listening.
2: Okay. Um, So um, give us uh, an overview of what you'd like to discuss today, because I don't think many people are um, aware of what actually an MAT program is.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I wanted to just kind of talk about substance use in general and then um, talk a little bit about some of the approaches for treatments. Okay. Um, and then mention some of the resources that I've learned about in the county. When I was at UCSF, I helped uh, run an ad- a harm reduction and addiction medicine interest group and electives for medical students. So we invited a lot of community members to come and kind of teach the medical students what they knew about treating addiction and about a harm reduction approach so i wanted to kind of just talk a little bit about that and then i'm excited to hear from also other community members who are maybe listening and have something to add um because i'm still learning all of the resources in the county
2: Well, we will have Valerie Moore from Covelo talk uh, after we're finished this half hour. Um, But also, as you said before, I'd like to hear from some people in the community that over that have overcome their addiction or currently have Mm -hmm. a substance abuse problem. Um, Mm -hmm. It's um, you know I don't think that there's a family anywhere. Uh, Certainly, my brother had a problem with alcohol. Um, I think it's a very pervasive, difficult problem. And working in the mm-hmm. emergency department, um, you see it every day, and I don't think we handle it well in our community or in the U.S.
4: Yeah, I think there's a lot of stigma still out there and in this community in particular. And uh, its I've met a lot of people who are working on it, so I think that I'm excited to... To talk on the show and have the opportunity to kind of just share some of the stuff that I've learned from those people, um, both here in Mendocino and at my time at UCSF. So, I mean, I think addressing stigma—the first thing that I learned from some of the people in UCSF who are really working on harm reduction and people in the Bay Area who are working on harm reduction—is something called person-first language, and that applies, I think, to a lot of other potentially stigmatized area of medicine, but essentially uh, instead of using kind of words like addict or things like that that have some negative connotations, you can simply describe someone as a person who uses drugs. Um, And I think there's a couple of reasons that's important because it reminds you when you're talking about these issues that these are things that affect real people You know, people who are the siblings, brother, sister, you know, children, parents of someone else who really loves them. And I think that we owe it to these people to treat them with respect. And so describing them as people first and then a person with a certain type of problem next um, is something that I learned as just like the very first introductory way to reduce the stigma around this issue.
2: I agree with that. I think that one of the nicest people I know has a substance abuse problem, and it isn't a matter of them being less of a person than anybody else, um, but everybody has problems, and their problem is substance abuse.
4: Yeah, and then some of the other things that I've kind of learned over time is using, um, like, opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder, and that's important because there are specific diagnostic criteria that we use to um, basically diagnose someone with these issues. And so that is the, the medically approved words. And, you know, when I'm a doctor and you're a doctor and when you're doctors, you have to use, you know, words that are associated with diagnoses. So that was also something I learned rather than, you know, like alcoholism or something like that. We're trying to really encourage medical providers to use words like alcohol use disorder
2: Well, let's go into um, definition of use disorder because I Mm -hmm. think people, you know, uh, I grew up in Texas and um, drinking beer every day wasn't an issue. But if you smoke marijuana, well, you were, you know, a bad person. It is is Mm -hmm. fascinating how there's all these, I mean, it's a very complex issue of sociology and, and... Psychology and physiology.
4: Yeah, and so some of the so the important thing to understand is that using a substance does not mean that you have a use disorder. And I think that's an important distinction. Not everyone who uses a substance, even some you know, quote unquote harder drugs like heroin or cocaine or something, doesn't necessarily mean that they have a use disorder. So you have to meet certain behavioral criteria primarily and then also some other things but the main things are you have to have impaired control so you aren't using more of the substance than you intended to or you're spending a lot of time trying to get more of the substance Um, and then you also have to have social impairment so you're not fulfilling major obligations that you might have at work or school it's causing recurrent interpersonal problems like in your family or with your friends Um, And you're giving up things that were previously important to you, like social, recreational activities, things that you were doing before but no longer doing now because you're using the substance. And then you also have to have risky use. So you're putting yourself in dangerous situations because of your substance use. Um, And then you also have to have, uh, for some drugs, you have to have dependence on it. So you have to have tolerance. So you're using more and more of the substance than you were before. And then you also have to have withdrawal symptoms. So those are the criteria to meet a a substance use disorder, and you have to have at least a few of those in order to meet the criteria. So not everyone who's using a substance will meet the criteria.
2: Okay, now if you wouldn't mind, just very slowly, uh, go over those four or five issues, because I think it's Mm -hmm. an an important definition for people to hear, because I know people that have a glass of wine every night, none of that supplies Mm -hmm. to them, but... Um, I, I just want people to hear um, when they should be worried or how, how this is being defined. I think it's an important uh, five or six points you said.
4: Yeah, yeah. So the main categories are impaired control, so using more of the substance than you had planned to or intended to. Okay. Uh, social, social impairment, so you're not uh, fulfilling major obligations that you have like work or school, or you're having some problems, you know, interpersonal problems with your family. Um, And sometimes this might be pointed out to you. You know, sometimes people have um, a lack of insight into how much of an issue they're having. But, you know, if someone is bringing things up to you, it might be worth taking note that maybe things are are not as uh, going as well as you thought they were. And then... Another category is risky use. So you're putting yourself in dangerous situations. Um, so it would be driving while you're under the influence of a certain substance. Um, you know, putting yourself in dangerous situations, trying to obtain more of the substance. That would be like examples. And then you have to have pharmacologic kind of dependence. So tolerance and withdrawal are the main things in that category. Um and that would mean, you know, using more of the substance than you were previously. So you, you drank a certain amount at one time, and then you have to drink more to get the same effect. And then withdrawal symptoms are the other. So if you were to stop and you're experiencing craving, you're pharmacologically dependent on on the substance. You know, so the, those are the main yeah. categories, but not, you don't have to have all of all them. All of them. Um, You typically have to have, you have mild, moderate, and severe, depending upon how many of these you meet.
2: Um, I'm going to tell you um, an important point to me working with people as an internist or in the ER was this lack of insight. It, It was amazing to me how people could have four out of these bad issues and be blinded, impaired, I'm not quite sure what the word is, of... Mm -hmm. what was going on that their lack of insight of how bad things were
4: yeah and i mean i think that's where harm reduction kind of does come in which harm reduction is a philosophy essentially where you meet people where they're at um and so you meet people at whatever place they are in terms of their readiness for change so you kind of what I do when I meet patients is I kind of ask them, you know, first of all, would it be okay if we talk about this topic at all? Um, and if they say no, I respect that, and you know, I I don't probe anymore. But if people are okay with kind of talking about their substance use, I ask them, you know, have they ever thought about? you know, stopping or cutting down their use or, you know, do they have any thoughts about about their substance use? And then oftentimes you will hear from people that they've thought about it um, and either they are interested in changing something or they're not interested at all. And then if they're not interested at all, you can think about ways to decrease the harms. So if this is a person who injects drugs, you might want to let them know that there are resources here to obtain um, new syringes, for example, so that they aren't getting bloodstream infections from their drug use. That's reducing harm and potentially keeping them out of the hospital. And, you know, that, that's just an example of kind of how harm reduction, a harm reduction mindset can help people who are using substances. You don't necessarily have to give up if someone is not ready to completely change and stop their their substance use
2: I think that's an important point you know in the hospital um, we have somebody uh, that we had to send out of uh, county to get plastic surgeries but had developed neck neck fascia or necrotizing Mm -hmm. fasciitis from their IV drug use and it's just eating their arm away as far as the muscle tissue they've had multiple 10 surgeries they're, they're not going to have a normal arm when this is left all over the mm-hmm. use of a dirty needle, which is, again, a harm reduction if you can show them where you can go to McAvin or somewhere to get some help.
4: Yeah, yeah, and McAvin is the Mendocino County AIDS and Viral Hepatitis Network. Um, they're based in Ukiah, but they go all over the county. I've gotten to know some of the people who work there Um, And they are the only harm reduction agency in Mendocino County, which is actually a super special thing because many rural counties don't have a harm reduction agency at all, Um, and they've been here since the 80s. So um, it's been really cool getting to know those people and, and just learning more about how they're reaching people in really remote parts of our county.
2: They do a great job, and actually myself, Lynn Meadows, Mary Newkirk, Deborah Mead, started that program in 1987 over AIDS patients that weren't getting any help. Can you both expand on that,
1: a harm reduction agency? Okay, go ahead, Kara.
3: Yeah,
4: sure. So I just have some, in front of me, I have a couple of principals that are from the Harm Reduction Coalition, which is a national organization um, that I got to know while I was a medical student at UCSF. And so, just basically the principles of harm reduction are that you accept, for better or worse, that licit and illicit drug use is part of our world. And we basically choose to work to minimize the harmful effects rather than simply to ignore or condemn them. Um, And it basically says... the the principles are that people will use drugs and people have for centuries and thousands upon thousands of years have used substances to kind of alter their consciousness. And the understanding that allows you to decrease the harms associated with drug use. So either that's by teaching people how to use drugs in a safer way um, and by providing them with the tools to do that. So, you know, having a syringe exchange in Ukiah is an example of that. Um, encouraging someone to moderate their alcohol use, be, basically being there for someone whether or not they've decided to stop or continue their use. Um, and then just having a really non judgmental attitude toward people who are using substances. Um, it's really more of a philosophy and a mindset than anything else.
1: So, is a harm reduction agency working with patients one-on-one, or is that like a public education kind of agency? I'm I'm trying to picture So,
4: in the, yeah, so the National Coalition um, works with different organizations across the country to do things like distribute naloxone, which is uh, also known as Narcan, so that's a an opioid reversal agent that you can give people if they overdose. And there's a nasal spray version of that, that you can get at your pharmacy, but they are working with emergency departments, other providers to just have that be more available to people. Um, they help communities set up syringe exchanges. Um, they provide medical care to people in certain places. So they are based in New York city and also in the Bay area in Oakland, um, and they provide overdose reversal trainings, and um, in Mendocino County, specifically at McCavin, they also provide some case management for patients, so to kind of just help people organize, um, you know, what they need to organize in order to help recover from a substance use disorder. So You know, doctor's appointments, things like that. You know, any legal issues that people find themselves in, they can help them with that, Um, you know, coordinating those things. So that's some of the stuff that McCavin does here. Dr. Trotter, you probably know a little bit more than me even about Um, what they can offer.
2: Well, McCavin and Dr. Guthrie and them do a great job, and I want you to know that we had a huge fight um, 10 years ago or 12 years ago with the sheriff, et cetera, over distributing clean needles there was a huge uproar from the sheriff about um... that we were promoting um, iv drug use et cetera et cetera and this was at the time where hiv was still a big thing and McAvin has had a huge you know impact in the community driving down the hiv communicate you know contamination rate and hepatitis c um, And I just want everybody to realize that paper after paper after paper has shown that this does not promote drug use, that this is harm reduction. And, you know, I see it very similar to AA meetings. Um, Going to AA, maybe you don't become clean and sober the rest of your life. Um, That's the point. But going to AA meetings hopefully gets you control of your life.
4: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that... The research is very, very clear that it reduces the the transmission of HIV. Having access to, you know, a syringe exchange and clean, clean syringes. So that's very clear.
1: Um, I just want everybody to know that we're tuned to KZYX. This is the Mind Body Health Show. Uh, our host is Dr. Marvin Trotter. My name Cobb. I'm engineering in the studio. And our guest today is Dr. Kara Eberhardt. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
3: yeah
4: it's
1: ever heard yep and we're talking about substance use disorder and specifically harm reduction and I'd like us to now specifically more talk about
2: the MAT programs because five years ago we didn't have that or I wasn't aware of it um, and I think it has the potential of making a huge difference much like the AA programs and could you discuss the MAT programs um, um, and what that's, what that is like
4: Yeah, yeah. So MAT stands for Medication Assisted Treatment or Medications for Addiction Treatment. Um, It encompasses a lot of different treatments, um, both for alcohol use disorder, um, for opioid use disorder. It's probably most often associated with opioid use disorder, though. Um, And the medications are typically methadone or buprenorphine or suboxone. Buprenorphine and suboxone are the same thing. And I just wanted to share, there was a study that came out in 2019 in uh, the Journal of Rural Health where they essentially surveyed how many uh, counties were without a provider who could prescribe buprenorphine or Suboxone. And essentially, more than half of all rural providers in 2012 lacked a provider who could prescribe this medication. Um, and then an update, which was published in 2019, show, still showed that one-third of rural Americans did not live in a county with a prescriber. Wow. Uh, fortunately, Mendocino County, yeah, Mendocino County is not in this place. We have several uh, prescribers, and they're kind of, I got a nice list of them from one of the substance use navigators who works up in at the hospital in Willits. And there are providers, essentially, in most of the small towns dotted all over our county. There are certainly several in Ukiah, several in Willett. Uh There's someone in Laytonville, Boonville, Fort Bragg, Willala, and, and... Now, Covalo.
2: I am I got a Covolo, Suboxone, yeah. Suboxone license in Covalo.
4: Yeah, yeah. And so the, the part about being licensed is there's a, something called an X waiver from the DEA where... Prescribers have to go through an extra eight hours of training if they're an MD, an extra 24 hours of training if they're an NP or a PA in order to be able to prescribe this medication. There is a push to try to get rid of this extra licensing requirement because the knowledge is not that great. It's really easy to to be able to use this medication. But that's the main barrier to preventing many prescribers from just doing this work.
2: So what if I, I'm going to have you go through a typical person. So I see someone in the emergency department as an ER physician, and they've come in with uh, a bad cellulitis or an OD. So I've given them Mm -hmm. their Narcan, they've survived their overdose, uh, et cetera, and now I'm going to refer them to the MAT program, the MAT program. What happens Mm -hmm. from there? Well,
4: I'll tell you what the ideal is. So I did a Project uh, when I was a medical student at a small clinic in the Sierra Foothills that was essentially doing this really well. Um, and then I'll tell you, I guess, kind of, you know, what we're, what we're working toward in the county. But uh, okay. if a patient was seen in the ER and they've had an overdose, they've had their overdose reversed, ideally in the ER they are just going, if they're interested, they're started on suboxone right then and there so that they have their withdrawal treated and they're feeling well and they're feeling stable and they're not feeling like they are having craving, feeling ill, feeling like, um, you know, that's the only thing they can think about is because they feel so ill. So now they, they have their symptoms treated and they're feeling well. They are linked directly with a clinic in the community, either the same day or the next day. And that part's super important because the, the, moments that people want to change needs to be grabbed because people can change their minds really quickly. So you want to just go ahead and take advantage of that moment where someone wants to change and bring them into care really fast. So... Ideally, when I was doing this project as a medical student, I would see that patients would be treated in the ER, get access to a couple days of medication from the ER, and then literally just be walked down the hill from the hospital to this clinic where they were seen by the provider that day, and they could have a longer-term prescription, usually just for like a week or two, and then they would have a close follow-up appointment. And then they would just get stabilized on the medication, and then once their medication needs were kind of, figured out they could add on everything else so if someone has depression they could work on treating their depression if they have legal issues they could work on addressing their legal issues if they needed just counseling for you know past trauma they have some PTSD or something I thought we could link them into counseling from there but it's really a medication first model where you just go ahead and you get people stabilized on the medication And then the other things
2: come after. So when I was doing the eight hours online, um, the thing that struck me the most was the craving issue. That people describe this as like you haven't had to drink a water in three days. And I think that speaks to your urgency of treatment. Um, But I can see where it's really hard to get off this stuff. And could you talk about what Suboxone is for a moment?
4: Yeah, it's... Um, a little bit different than methadone. It's a partial agonist on the opioid receptor, meaning that it, uh, it's very safe, actually. It's almost impossible to overdose on buprenorphine just because of the pharmacology. There have been many studies from Europe looking at this, and the situations in which someone has overdosed on buprenorphine, there's usually other uh, drugs involved almost unheard of to overdose on your own, on that drug by itself, essentially. Uh, So you typically take it once a day, and it effectively treats craving and withdrawal symptoms for opioids. Uh, It doesn't treat other substance use disorders, so people oftentimes have co-occurring substance use disorders. You know, maybe they have a stimulant use disorder, too. Uh, It does not treat those issues. Although the structure and some of the behavioral Supports that come with being on a medication like, you know, buprenorphine and suboxone can treat those other issues too.
2: Um, and, and it has Narcan yeah. in it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So there's the main type of formulation. Uh, suboxone is a combination drug. It has buprenorphine and naloxone in it. The naloxone doesn't really do anything if you take it orally. It's essentially a preventative safety measure if someone were to try to melt it and inject it they would essentially be reversing themselves so that's why that's there
2: so um there's one other question oh go ahead go on. well i'm just curious dr Eberhart. what
1: inspires you to to care about substance use disorder enough to you know want to mm-hmm. speak on that subject specifically and how do you incorporate this into your, you know, daily, um, interaction with patients as a family physician?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Well, I mean, I think there are just like everybody, there are people in my own family who've had struggled with these issues, which gives me a lot of kind of personal experience of, of being on, on the side where you're worrying about someone. Um, but then I also just in my professional work, Worked with patients for six years before I went to medical school. I worked in a methadone um, clinic in East Oakland, and I worked at a clinic in in Oakland that worked on harm or on uh, hepatitis C treatment. And then I also worked at a private practice in Marin. And I just I really saw how people do actually get better when they're given the right support, and maybe it takes them several times of of trying and several hospitalizations for some something related to their substance use before they're ready to make some change. But it, it definitely happens. At UCSF I got to spend two weeks on the Addiction Medicine Consult Service and I definitely saw the importance of just having someone directly address your substance use issues and give you the opportunity to change. And it was really it there's just nothing better for me than helping someone who has just been, especially constantly treated poorly when they usually interact with the medical system. And that unfortunately happens for many people who use drugs. They're not treated well when they try to get help for whatever issues, because they're kind of blamed for, you know, the abscess in their arm or something. And people, I don't know, it just, it, I find it really inspirational and important advocate for these people because they're still people and I've seen people change and it's, I don't know, every day in my work though when I'm patients in the hospital and in the clinic I try to advocate for them. I try to let them know that I am a non-judgmental person. They can share with me uh, anything about what's going on in their life and I'm not going to judge them for it.
1: Thanks for that. Uh, I kind of want to bring something up and get Uh, both your opinion and Dr. Marvin Trotter's, which is to bring this subject to kind of the personal lives of all our listeners in terms of... I know we're speaking about uh, hard substance abuse, uh, particularly, you know, it's easy to categorize substance abuse when it's been criminalized. That's an easy stigma, but then I think about, you know, alcoholism is another one that's fairly normalized, but even... When you're talking with patients about their diet or even cigarette smoking where they're not eligible for an elective surgery because, you know, smoking cigarettes and that kind of thing. And I just wonder what sort of experiences and opinions you both have on that. Go ahead, Karen. Yeah, I mean, I've
4: seen that oftentimes, you know, that patients don't get. And another extreme example of that is, you know, people with cirrhosis, for example, uh, from alcohol use disorder, are not eligible for transplants for, um, you know, vital organs that they might need. Um, and part, part of that is based in, you know, they, they want things to be successful for you. So for certain surgeries, they they want the surgical outcome to be as good as possible. smoking, you know, increases that risk. But I think it what needs to happen is is this needs to be explained to patients and explained in a non-judgmental way say that you know i want what i want the best thing for you i don't want you to have a surgery that is going to have a poor outcome because i didn't explain to you what the risk factors were and then you also owe it to people to offer them a way to change Because if you just say you can't get the surgery because you're a smoker, that doesn't really help anyone. What might help would be are you interested in stopping your your smoking and can I help you with that, rather than just blaming someone for for a behavioral problem that they have and are struggling with and not offering them any help. That's how I approach things anyway.
2: I agree. I think that, you know, especially... um I know that AA changes people's lives and MAT program does the same thing, that um, giving up smoking, giving up uh, substance abuse completely changes your life rather than talking to me at 65 about your end-stage emphysema and wanting to go on palliative care because you have to have oxygen every day. the, The amount of good that can come out of MAT and AA programs is enormous. You're changing people's lives for decades. Well Yeah,
4: I mean, it's getting at, like, the root cause of a lot of problems. And I find that many people end up in the hospital here because of substance use issues. And, unfortunately, the, the root cause of all these issues hadn't been addressed, you know, potentially decades before.
2: Right. And when we have twice the overdose death rate than the state average, it's significant Uh, we had a caller
1: calling in call back caller
2: I just had you on hold there since Um, we're getting into the call session already I want um, uh, Valerie Moore to call from the MAT program in Covalo which we're just starting now
1: so um, call us up 895-2448 if you have a question Uh, and we are hoping to bring some other guests over the phone to give us some local updates on these programs Uh, meanwhile we're tuned to kzyx this is the mind body health show your host is dr marvin trotter our guest is dr kara everhart uh family residency program member here uh locally which is a huge program and we're talking about substance use disorder let's check this caller that just called in welcome to kzyx you're live on the radio
3: Hi, this is Valerie from Covalo.
1: Great. Great timing. So Valerie, uh, um,
2: identify yourself and tell them what we're trying to do in Covalo.
3: All right, well, my name's Valerie Moore. I am the MAP project coordinator and case manager at Round Valley Indian Health Center's Yuki Trails Human Services Department. We have built a MAP program here and now we are trying to implement it. Dr. Trotter is our ex-waivered provider. And um, let me tell you why we need it here in Copolo. So right now there are 72 active cases in Round Valley of children being displaced from their birth parents due to substance use, and it also has been reported by local law enforcement that 70% of all calls in Round Valley are related to are related to substance use.
2: Those are big numbers. Yes. Tell, tell us about the different people that are going to be associated with the MAT program.
3: Okay, so, well, we have you, but we also have two SUD counselors and our resident psychologist who will be all um, integrated into this MAP program. And who are they? Oh, so we have Kenny Hanover. Derry Lynn Reeves, they are both SUD counselors, and we also have Dr. Matt, who is our resident psychologist here.
2: And I think that's what Dr. Everhart was talking about. This isn't a matter of just me writing a prescription sub- suboxone. This is much more of a complex psychological, social issue. And for people that come to the M.A.T. programs, they're going to get help on several fronts because this isn't just a, here's one drug, you're going to be well. In fact, I think the suboxone... Uh, is a small part of this because I, I think it's the coordination and um, input from a lot of different people to address um, the whys of substance abuse is is the big um, help here.
3: Yes, I I totally agree. I think that Suboxone kind of normalizes the brain and puts somebody in on a level where they can receive treatment and we can get down to those root causes.
2: Because if you yeah, don't I would agree. solve, yeah, go yeah, ahead. And Cara. I
4: think that that's why you also need to offer the medicine first. There's a lot of medication first models where you just allow people time to stabilize those things and then offer them, you know, behavioral health treatments later. Um, because I think there there have been older models where there were hoops that people had to jump through in order to get access to this medication. Mm-hmm. And I think that the newer research is showing that those hoops are really just barriers.
2: That's interesting. Uh, first of all, I was impressed with the success of Suboxone and helping the cravings and transitioning the patients. Dr. Ron Sand, um, we I work with the palliative care program. And he took two people that were on large doses of opiates for, you know, significant medical problems and transferred them to Suboxone, completely altered their mental status and physical health and stability. I'm, I'm impressed with Suboxone. And number two, uh, uh, Valerie and the Round Valley Indian Health Clinic, we're going to try to start a... Suboxone clinic Thursday morning every day in Covelo. I'm there Thursdays and Fridays, starting next
1: month. I have a question. What's the you know average or target timeline for a patient that's getting on Suboxone for people that have been successful in recovering from addiction to where they're able to maintain their health and and you know uh, freedom from substance abuse on their own power? The question is, how long are you on Suboxone? Yeah, and working with these programs. Dr. Eberhardt, what would you...
4: Yeah, yeah, it's super variable. Um, There are... The research that I've read says that most people should be on it at least a year. And that's based on how long it takes you to basically organize all of the things that you need to organize to to help your life get on track. So, like I said, like, legal things, uh, you know, behavioral health things, like, get all the supports in place that you need to. There are some people who will be on it for the rest of their lives, and that's okay. Um, For those people, you are always weighing risks and benefits in medicine. And for those people, the risks of being on this medication for the rest of their life versus the risk of going off of it and a relapse and all of the havoc that comes with substance use is not worth coming off the medicine. So it's a super individualized choice for people, but I will say that the the research is pretty clear about trying to stay on at least a year.
2: I, I agree. I, I thought at least six months. And if you look at the AA models, we're trying to get the Ford Street program. I want to put out a um, a... A bulletin here about the Ford Street program, and I forgot the pamphlet in my car. There is a, a program now that the state of California is giving you free treatment at Ford Street for alcohol and substance abuse, which has never been done before. We, there's co- it's called Drug Medical. So the state of California will pay. Doesn't cost you a penny to go to Ford Street uh, for a month to three months um and you call in and go through a program that you have a phone number that i should have had in front of me um and you can go and call the state and go through the program and get accepted to ford street and ukiah and get therapy you're off uh you know the alcohol you get medical treatment et cetera, et cetera. and i think that's because people are realizing that Rather than paying for all these very expensive diagnoses and letting you wreck your body, we should do the more humane, effective treatment by having MAT programs and AA and Ford Street programs available to people more upstream and make changes when you're younger rather than older.
4: Yeah, I think now is definitely the time where seeking help for a substance use problem is easier than it ever has been. When I first graduated from undergrad, I I worked in a residential uh, rehab facility, and it was a lot harder to find treatment back then, and that was only like 10 years ago, so things have come a long way, for sure.
1: Well, let's have some more details on this program up in Covalo, uh, and if people are interested to be supportive of that program or find out more, you know, what's the contact information, how do they get involved, what are your plans immediately that kind of thing
3: Okay, perfect. So we do have a referral process in place. Like say someone is admitted to Howard Memorial, they can all they can always refer somebody here, but say someone is referred to Yuki Trails or to the Round Valley Indian Health Center, they will most likely they will contact me and they'll come in to see me. My name's Valerie at Yuki Trails, and I will just sit there and talk with them and see what they would like to do, and then hopefully on the same day get them set up with a, an appointment with Dr. Trotter if they want to go into the MAP program. And then we will also set them up with an appointment with Kenny, our substance use counselor, and with Dr. Mack, our psychologist.
2: What's um, the contact number?
3: So our contact number, my personal contact number is 707-983-6648 extension
2: 203 say that once more 983 983
3: 6648 extension 203
2: ok I think we also want to take calls from the public uh, Dr. Eberhardt wanted to hear actually from some people that have gone through the program um, are currently using questions for her as far as their particular use. So call in if you like at 895 2448, 895 2448 to discuss the topic. Thank you very much, Valerie. Yeah, and Valerie, are you, you guys.
3: are
1: you staying with us or are you departing?
3: I'm departing, but I can call back if need be.
1: All right. Thanks a lot for being here, Valerie.
3: Thank you for having me. Bye. I also
4: wanted to put in a quick plug for our residency clinic because okay. we'll yeah, also good. be doing yes. that.
2: Yeah, tell us about um,
4: that. And yeah, yeah. So we're uh, we have all of our attending physicians who are the supervising doctors that I work with have their um, X waivers, their waiver to prescribe buprenorphine for patients, um, and we see. All the, the entire lifespan. So we see children, uh, you know, adolescents with these issues. We see adults. We see pregnant people. Um, and so our clinic is open to all of those patients. Um, we're located in Ukiah, right across from the hospital. Um, and our phone number is 707-463-7495.
2: Say that one more time. Yeah.
4: 707 463
2: And I think that's important if anybody takes something away from this uh, program, I want them to have hope that themselves or a relative can find help through AA, the MAT programs, call us, phone numbers. Uh, Like you say, that there's places uh, throughout uh, Mendocino County to help. This is a crushing problem. Uh, We had an OD of someone in Ukiah just recently. Um, fine young man Um, this isn't about people or bad people this isn't about you're a bad person if you're um, having troubles with substance abuse it is a chemical change and some people are much more dependent my daughter um, Eliza who uh, got a master's in neuroscience and medical school in Australia um, said that there was—I forget the percentage, of number of people that use that have um, schizophrenia are genetically predisposed to this. But if they use marijuana every day, you have 100%—100% um, expo- um, of the people will express schizophrenia. People have positive family histories, and. Um, I won't go into it with alcohol, but it is amazing how many people have the genetics to um, have a whole different experience on alcohol than other people that don't have the predisposing genetics. Um, Treat yourself as a good person that needs help.
4: Yeah, and we haven't really talked about alcohol very much, um, but there are effective medications that can help people with alcohol use disorder too. naltrexone is one of them that I have given to some of my patients. Um, And I've been trying to encourage people to prescribe it from the hospital. Um, When I'm in the hospital, I I always bring it up if I have a patient with an alcohol use disorder. Uh, So that's a medication that you don't need a special waiver for. Anybody can prescribe that. So the goal is to make addiction treatment very easy to access and that, you know, every primary care provider in the county could could provide some, some form of addiction treatment for their patients. So and it I th- shouldn't be that you have to go to a specialist.
2: I think that's a problem, and that's something that we could work on, because when I was in my office as an internist, this wasn't something that I brought up, treated, was frank with my patients, uh, discussed. I was wholly inadequate. You know, I could take on your diabetes hypertension ulcerative colitis whatever but um substance abuse was not part of my regular discussion with patients what
1: about what about i i just have a question on that note what about regular everyday you know catching a cold kind of experiences because i know for instance alcohol even for somebody that maybe doesn't fit the spectrum of needing intense intervention, it's pretty obvious that alcohol suppresses the immune system. So somebody is experiencing an illness or a chronic illness and they want medications to help that. And at the same time, its I've had that experience of, of asking, well, hey, are you prepared to quit drinking for a few weeks to help? get over this illness or what have you and like as a family practice doctor is that a conversation you have with your patients i let kara do that
4: <laughs> i mean it's a conversation that i have with my patients um i'm we so the the recommendations from the cdc now are that you screen everyone for substance use issues particularly about alcohol uh, there are clear guidelines you know for men and women in terms of how much is considered a safe amount of alcohol to drink. For women, it's no more than two in a day, 14 in a week. Uh, And for men, it's no more than three in a day or 21 drinks in a week. Um, And so we kind of ask everybody those questions. If someone's drinking more than that, then you have to start asking the questions like the ones that I mentioned before about, you know, do they meet criteria for a use disorder or do they just have kind of what we call risky use where they're maybe drinking more than they should and that you have to educate people about why you care. It's not because you're trying to be like the morality police of, you know, I don't think this is the right, you know, good or right. It's really like I'm concerned that this could start to have health impacts on your health if you're drinking more than this. And, you know, it's associated with, you know, more frequent illnesses, for example, but also things like cirrhosis and liver damage. Um, and so that's, I, I always try to educate people as to why I am harping on certain things. And it's not because I don't want people to live their lives. It's because I want them to have all of the information to make, you know, educated decisions about how they want to live their lives.
1: Yeah. I want to interject here with you both because this is something I have some passion for and I'll make an attempt to articulate it. Uh, Regarding, you know, alcoholism, even cigarette smoking, and bringing it to, you know, functioning adults that are part of the destigmatization effort, let's say, for when we're talking about needing the support to, say, decriminalize hard drug usage to be supportive of all of our addicts in that regard, is, you know, me personally, have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody that's recovered from substance abuse, knowing how much effort it takes to change our behaviors internally, and recognizing the challenge that we all face on a daily basis to change our behaviors with something as basic as, you know, altering our, our daily lives to, say, exercise more. Um, to improve our health and, you know, recognize that quality of life. But then when it gets to these really powerful, you know, life-threatening addictions where we're talking about overdose risk and so forth, um, I I just want to voice that connection that we all face in terms of how difficult it is for people to make those changes, the amount of work they do, and when people come out of that, even if they're struggling the rest of their lives, I personally have a true, even though their life may continue yep. to be very rough around the edges, in quotations, the tremendous amount of respect I have in terms of destigmatizing that, to be like, whoa, like, that's it's a, a It's a tough, big
2: hill to overcome. It's a big
1: hill, and and we can all maybe connect and relate to that, just in terms of, altering our daily alcohol usage to get over a cold or improve our exercise just to feel a little better during the day and have, you know, stronger heart.
2: Dr. Eberhard, did you, did you bring, did you have him bring this up as far as, you know, family practice and good health and, you know, did you put him up to that statement?
4: I did not, no.
1: (laughs) Hey, we have a call, everybody. (laughs) Welcome to KZYX, you're live on the radio.
0: Yeah, I thank you, Cobb, for what you just said. Um, I just also want to mention, first of all, thank you to Dr. Everhart and to Dr. Trotter and to you, uh, Cobb, about the, the thing that I'd like to mention or recognize is that there's addictions of all sorts, and there's some that are socially acceptable, like working, working too much, exercising too much, there's, you know, people are addicted to food, to shopping, to TV, gaming, yep. gambling, sex. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many kinds of addictions there are. And, and recognizing that um, we need to kind of look at the total picture and anything that harms a person's life, that takes away from their health, that takes away from their enjoyment of being around other people. um, Those are the things that we need to address. And it's not just at substance, although substance is huge, but some of these others are life-threatening. I know people that they're... they're, much debt from gambling, they lose their home. Some of them commit suicide because of it. You know, I mean, there's some pretty serious stuff that we have out there and
2: around us thank you thank you yeah, i think you make an important call. point because it's i don't really care if it's obesity or anorexia or gambling et cetera. Et cetera. and i think that dr Aberhart talked about you know is are you having to alter your life are you having conflict with your family are you giving up regular social stuff i mean a lot of this applies to other addictions yeah
4: absolutely and i used to work in eating disorder addiction you know clinics too. And it's very similar. A lot of the things kind of overlap. And then you also find sometimes if people have one addiction, they can, you know, cease their use of that and then develop another one. It's super common. Um, So anybody who's treating these issues, you have to be kind of on high alert for any other potential issues that might develop with your patient and just really fostering open communication so that you can, you know, work on other issues that come up
2: one thing i'd like to point out is my daughter the psychologist uh, amber says that in covid we've had a 40 percent increase in alcohol consumption suicides etc do something outside with your mask on with a friend get out of your house it's very confining try to be more social as you can and be safe about it why don't you give us one more time your addiction number and and you need to sign off
1: yeah we're at the end of our hour
4: The cl- the clinic number you mean? Yes. Okay. So the, the number for the Family Medicine Residency Clinic where I work is 707-463-7495. 7495.
2: Thank you very much for an excellent mm-hmm. show.
1: Thanks, Thanks Thank Dr. Dr. So Eberhardt. Thanks. And with that, folks, we conclude this Thanks. show. That's all there is. Stay tuned. Hope you enjoyed it.
0: Is that...